Welcome to Managed Care Cast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Maggie Shaw, Senior Editor at the American Journal of Managed Care. On this episode of Managed Care Cast, we speak with Dr. Amelia Benjamin of Boston University Medical Campus, Boston Medical Center, Boston University Shobanian and Abidizian School of Medicine, and the Boston University School of Public Health. At this year's American Society for Preventive Cardiology's Congress on CVD Prevention, Dr. Benjamin delivered the Honorary Fellow Award Lecture, The Imperative to Focus on the Prevention of Atrial Fibrillation, as the recipient of this year's Honorary Fellow of the American Society for Preventive Cardiology Award. Having received the honor for her extraordinary contributions to the field of preventive cardiology, she stopped by to talk with AGMC while in Arlington, Texas, and our conversation covered everything from just what AFib is, to risk factors and prevention strategies, to connections between AFib and non-cardiovascular health conditions, to long-term data on stroke. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Benjamin. Before we begin, can you please introduce yourself and your work to our audience? So my name is Emilia Benjamin. I am an Associate Provost for Faculty Development at Boston University Medical Campus, a cardiologist at Boston Medical Center, which is a large urban safety net hospital in New England. And then I'm also a professor of medicine in the Department of Medicine at Boston University, training the Abidusian School of Medicine, and a professor of epidemiology at the Boston University School of Public Health. Can you explain what atrial fibrillation is and discuss how this cardiac condition presents itself? Atrial fibrillation is an irregularly irregular heart rhythm. People may notice it if they have um, some kind of fitness device or some kind of heart rate tracking device. They may notice that their heart seems to be skipping or isn't going boom, 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 but rather boom, 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 like that. Um, sometimes people even feel it in their chest. On the other hand, oftentimes people are asymptomatic, and the concern is that oftentimes their first presentation in the condition is a complication from atrial fibrillation. What explains the historic lack of a specific focus on preventing atrial fibrillation, and why is the need for a prevention effort becoming more important? Thank you so much for the question. I, I personally think that probably part of the problem is, is ageism, is that for many, many years, the conditions that were most studied happened in younger individuals. Now people are living longer with both cardiovascular disease and many other conditions. And so we're going on to develop conditions such as atrial fibrillation. It turns out that the lifetime risk of atrial fibrillation for people of European ancestry is about one in three. For people of African ancestry is about one in five. So it's a very common condition that occurs more and more as people age. In terms of why is it important now, it's increasing in incidence, meaning the number of new cases, prevalence, the number of existing cases, the lifetime risk, meaning how the likelihood of going on to develop it before one passes, and the complications are significant. 
including stroke, coronary heart disease, myocardial infarction, heart failure. Turns out there's a, many other conditions that are associated with What are key risk factors associated with the development of AFib? For example, social determinants of health or inequitable access to care. And are there any prevention strategies to help reduce the burden of AFib on a population level? Okay, really fundamentally important question. I, one of my favorite sayings that my dad taught me when I was a little kid, it's an ounce of prevention's worth a pound of cure. And so we know that it's very important to prevent conditions before they emerge so that you can prevent the morbidity and mortality from the condition. So what do we know about the risk factors for atrial fibrillation? So um, some of the more commonly studied are both the lifestyle and the genetic. So I'm going to give an example. If you have a low clinical risk and a low genetic risk, your lifetime risk of developing atrial fibrillation is about one in five. On the other hand, if you have a high genetic risk, family history, little variants that are associated with increased risk. If you have a high genetic risk and a high clinical risk, your lifetime risk is about one in two, so 50%. It's extremely common. My father had atrial fibrillation, so I'm already thinking about trying to prevent it myself. So what can we do? What can you do? What can clinicians do? First of all, we can encourage our patients to adopt healthy lifestyles. What do I mean by that? So maintaining a normal weight. It turns out that people who are obese have a 50% higher chance of developing atrial fibrillation than their normal weight counterparts. We can um, also think about drinking a normal amount. Um, it turns out that even a small amount of alcohol increases the risk of atrial fibrillation. If one has atrial fibrillation, it increases the risk of going on and developing persistent atrial fibrillation. And in fact, we did a fascinating randomized controlled study in Australia where they randomized people to atrial fibrillation to abstinence or usual care. The people who were abstinent had a much higher recurrence free rate in the order of almost one in two, as opposed to those who went on to continue drinking only one in four were able to be atrial fibrillation-free recurrence. So very important to also treat and maintain healthy drinking patterns or not drink at all. Other things are treating one's blood pressure, um, getting regular exercise, etc. So the second part of your question is fundamental and really has received very, very little attention. That is social determinants of health. What, what do we mean by that? Does that mean social, like, you know, we go out and, you know, mingle with people? No. It means what are the structural factors in our society that are associated with an increased risk of developing atrial fibrillation and an increased risk of developing complications in atrial fibrillation? So the factors are very well established, well, increasingly emerging. We still need more data. But first, race and ethnicity. Oddly enough, it turns out that people of African ancestry tend to have less atrial fibrillation than their white European counterparts. Part of that's probably a detection bias, but part of it may be genetics. We know that that's true. However, once people of African ancestry do develop atrial fibrillation, they have more complications. They're less likely to receive evidence-based therapies such as anticoagulation, 
less likely to have their anticoagulation well controlled, et cetera. So that's one social, uh, that's one structural risk factor, which may reflect various embedded um, problems with uh, racism and et cetera. It's not inherent to people of African ancestry. Another issue is education and income. Again, structural issues. People who are affluent, who have better access to care, get their risk factors treated more aggressively, have less onset of atrial fibrillation, and they tend to go on to develop fewer complications in atrial fibrillation because they get evidence-based therapies. One of the things that I'm concerned about is underinsurance or lack of insurance. And so when we look at states that haven't expanded Medicaid, that's a real concern because um, the medications for atrial fibrillation cost money. And we have no one preventive therapies. It turns out if you have atrial fibrillation, you have risk factors for having a stroke. If you're in an anticoagulant, you decrease your chances of developing an ischemic stroke almost uh, two-thirds. And you decrease your all-cause mortality if you take anticoagulants. So very, very important to deal with some of these structural social issues, um, including access, health literacy, um, and ensuring that people get evidence-based therapies. Can you discuss some of the connections between AFib and other non-cardiovascular health conditions? So that's a really important question. The, the, the first is, it turns out, there have been so many studies over the last two decades that have looked at various other conditions, cancer, inflammatory conditions, such as rheumatoid arthritis, et cetera, people who have non-cardiac surgery, many of those are associated with an increased risk of developing atrial fibrillation. Um, and so, you know, it's important to think about, does somebody have risk factors for atrial fibrillation and address risk factors kind of way upstream. The other thing that I wanted to add was, what are the conditions, so, so those are things that are risk factors for atrial fibrillation. What about complications after the onset of atrial fibrillation? So one of the ones that's receiving increased attention is cognition, lower cognition and atrial fibrillation. And so it turns out there's an emerging signal that people who uh, have atrial fibrillation have a higher risk of cognitive decline and a higher risk of um, going on and um, developing dementia. And that's accounting for their increased risk of stroke. Considering the multifaceted nature of prevention measures, are there lesser known lifestyle modifications or interventions that show promising potential in reducing the incidence of AFib? And how might they be incorporated into existing prevention strategies? That's a great question. I don't, you know, we're still, there are so many different putative risk factors. Many of them are not particularly evidence-based. I think the one that is the least um, implemented is limiting the amount of alcohol consumption. I know very few physicians who recommend to their patients with atrial fibrillation that they limit their amount of alcohol. I think that's very important. Uh, and so real role for prevention. I think also most people don't realize that regular exercise makes a difference. 
One of the things that's quite concerning to me is that cardiac rehab has not been, uh, um, atrial fibrillation has not been approved as an indication for cardiac rehab. And cardiac rehab does some of the best jobs of doing these complex multifactorial interventions. We hope that that's going to happen in the future where um, Medicare and the insurers will reimburse for cardiac rehab to prevent complications in atrial fibrillation. What do long-term data tell us about the burden of stroke, even in countries where cardiovascular death had been declining? Another great, I mean, these are one great question after another, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. So what we know is that, uh, you know, DOACs or um, direct oral anticoagulants, many of them are still on patent. Unfortunately, the patent for Apixaban just got extended, and so they're expensive. And we know that warfarin is effective and the DOACs are more effective at preventing ischemic stroke and also having fewer hemorrhagic strokes. We know that from meta-analyses. Many of the low-income countries do, and, and even middle-income countries, frankly, this country, if you don't have health insurance, we do not have full implementation of anticoagulation. So when we look across the globe, there are marked inequities in terms of the prevention of stroke um, by socioeconomic status and by the income of the country. Well, that was the last question I had for you. Is there anything we have not addressed that you believe is important for our audience to know? First of all, how do we know what to do? We know what to do because of randomized controlled trials. And so if you were ever approached to be a member of a randomized controlled trial, please, you know, consider it carefully. I was part of the COVID Pfizer randomized controlled trial. So I put my body where my mouth is. You know, I think it's important to contribute to science. And by the way, it turns out that even people on placebo do better because they get better monitoring if they're part of studies. The second thing that I'd like to add is that for people that are doing studies for other conditions like high blood pressure or like heart failure, like myocardial infarction, please add as a secondary endpoint atrial fibrillation so we can improve the evidence base and practice more evidence-based medicine knowing what works and doesn't work in the prevention of atrial fibrillation. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Benjamin. We know your schedule during the ASPC conference was packed, and we really do appreciate you stopping by and taking some time and talking with us. Great. For all of us at AJMC.com, thanks for listening. To learn more about this issue, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, Email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.